Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to The Midpoint with me, Gabby Logan. This week, I'm delighted to welcome broadcaster, entrepreneur and property expert, Sarah Beanie. Sarah is first and foremost a businesswoman. She set up a property development company aged just 24. And she and her husband, Graeme Swift, have created a number of businesses in the years since. But Sarah has also been on our tellies for more than a decade, presenting shows such as Restoration Nightmare, Renovate, Don't Relocate, Property Ladder, and Sarah Beanie's New Life in the Country. And as well as raising her four sons, Sarah has become one of the most familiar and trusted names in the world of property, writing regular columns and several books. Midlife has been quite turbulent for her, though. At the age of 50, Sarah was diagnosed with breast cancer. Over the last year, she's been undergoing treatment, working on her new book and being a groupie mum, watching her sons perform in their band as often as she can. So we're going to talk about all of that and we're also going to be chatting to host of the Financial Times Money Clinic podcast, Claire Barrett, about all things personal finance. But first off, a big hello to Sarah. Sarah Beanie, welcome to The Midpoint. How are you? Very well, thanks. How are you? Very well indeed. It is so great to get you on for loads of reasons, uh, but not least because I have just finished your book, The Simple Life, uh, How I Found Home, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was brilliant. And I'm going to go straight to the end of the book, actually, if it's all right, because it feels like it's the first question I have to ask you. When I say, how are you? How are you? Because obviously you've written about your breast cancer in the book at the end, but almost begrudgingly because it's kind of stoic, just get on and do things, Sarah, doesn't really kind of have time to, you know, that's a kind of the tone of which you wrote about it. But I, but I think our <laughs> listeners will want to know how you are. Oh, well, first of all, thank you very much for reading it. That's very kind of you. So <laughs> thank you. Um, but I'm very well. Thank you. Yeah, no, really well. I um, it's a It's a funny journey. And in some ways it feels like, I didn't want it to be the defining thing in my life. I didn't want to be Sarah Beanie had cancer. And and so I thought, gosh, I'm writing this book. And then it's in, I actually asked um, the publishers if I could not put it in. And they said, no, that's not really going to work, not putting it in. I was like, really? Are you sure we have to put it in? Because I sort of think, you know, my friends laugh about it, but they say that my coping mechanism is to pick up the carpet and sweep everything underneath and then pop it back down and then move on. And that's always been, you know, I'm not saying it's how anyone else should be. It, it isn't. I'm sure many people would say that's terrible. You should process it and different. But that's just been, you know, things, we all own our own edit, don't we? I always think that's kind of the interesting thing in a way about life is if I've lived on the planet for well, I've been lucky enough to live on the planet 51 years and I couldn't tell you anything about my life without taking 51 years to tell you about it. So I have to edit it down and then you choose what you want to edit in and edit out and I kind of like to edit in the good bits. And I didn't really think cancer was a good bit so I thought I would prefer to edit it out. So when I wrote the book, I I intentionally kept it to one chapter which I thought that way you could just like not read that chapter if you didn't want to. <laughs> 
but you you do talk earlier in the book about losing your mum um, as a young girl, and obviously, you know, when you've gone through that, then as a as a mother yourself of four boys who feature heavily through through the book, and in you know an enormous source you can sell that kind of comes off the page of the the pride that you have for those boys and their lives. How did that impact you emotionally? You can't just sweep that under the rug, surely, when that those kind of emotions collide. No, that's weird, isn't it? Because I'm happy with not sweeping that under the carpet. And I guess in a way it's shaped my life. But I wouldn't say it's sort of, I don't know, I wouldn't want to sweep my mother under the carpet. And if I can't sweep her under the carpet, which I don't want to, then her death is very much part of of what has shaped my life. And, um, you know, I it was... And it's quite, um, I think when you're a child and you lose a parent, it it takes an incredibly long time to process that because you don't really get it completely. And that takes decades and decades to process because you're not really, you know, it's the enormity of being an adult is impossible to imagine as a 10 year old. So you can't think what it will be like in the future, not having a mother. It's not till you are older and you don't have a mother and you think, oh yeah, this is what it's like. So yeah, I guess, um, I do talk quite openly about that all the way through. And again, I wouldn't like to be defined as... But I wonder I wonder the emotions of when you received your diagnosis and you talk, I think your son Charlie said something quite profound actually about how many people die of cancer, but actually, mum, lots of people live. And so you had positivity from your kids around you. And I'm sure, you know, your husband Graham as well, everybody was, was rooting and giving you all the love and support they could. But as a mother, when you look at your offspring you look at your brood and think then about your mother leaving you yeah. and your brother yeah I mean it's very there's been a few moments in my life that have been very real when you think about when I you know that, that she's been particularly relevant one was when my eldest son was born and I thought that was a very big moment I thought I don't have a, a mother here that's really weird and then and then when I got my diagnosis I mean it was something that I'd always I sort of always imagined I, I would get in a way and yet dreaded at the same time. But so she died when she was 39. When I got to 40, I had a little tiny bit of a crisis in, because I was like, well, what do I do now? I kind of, I just imagined, I don't know. It wasn't like I thought I was going to die. I just didn't, couldn't picture life past mm. 39. So I got to 40 and was like, God, this is like really weird. Now what do you do? And, um, and so, yes, certainly my diagnosis I guess you learn from the things that your parents teach you. And then, I mean, there's a saying that that you give your children the childhood you wish you'd had and they will do the same, which is very wise, I think, because, of course, my children will give their children the childhood they wish they had had, which won't be the one I gave them. Oh, I, um, I, don't, but, I don't see what else they could add to it. I mean, you you know, uh, let's talk about that because you have given them from the outside, and I've seen your TV shows as well, you know, the, the building of your new home and they feature in that and in the book, obviously. They seem to have had a fantastic time. Well, they do. They have had an amazing time. They're incredibly fortunate. And someone said the other day, uh, what's the difference between privileged and entitled and the difference is gratitude. And I thought that's really wise, isn't it? But, but um, they are very, very fortunate, but they do know they're fortunate and that is good. But I guess, I mean, you know, the things like I'm weak as a parent, I'm, you know, they're always, one of them's always saying, why do you let him get away with that? If you let him get away with that, he'll never learn, mum. I get lectures of parenting from the kids. They're like, you need to be consistent. You need to see your threats through. And, and so... 
you know, if one of them's late, the other ones will go, just drive off, leave him, leave him. And I'm like, no, I can't, I can't. So I'm weak and pathetic. Weak. Uh, but you say that, of course, they are privileged in the in the obvious ways, you know, in terms of the places they've lived and, and the experiences. But actually, the stuff I was referring to is not the stuff that costs anything. You know, the the, the, the fun that you seem to have all had together, the the music, the entertaining each other, you know, and, and four brothers being together could go quite wrong, couldn't it? You know, they could be fighting and all the time. But they, well, I'm sure they do have their moments but there does seem to be just such a, a lovely you know I was kind of wanting to be there in Rise Hall when you're having your Christmases I wanted to you know I wanted to when I'm reading the book feeling like oh I could I could have dropped him for a drink that day that's that's the way you kind of sell or it feels like you know that they have come through their their childhood with this joy and uh, joining in together and and having you know experiences I think yeah I mean I suppose um, maybe one of the things that I got slightly you know well it's always been called ants in my pants but I'm not very good at sitting still and doing the same so we do a lot of things I'm not very good at you know I couldn't just sit all day and watch telly they'd like to but I'm just like no it's waste for day come along come along so um yeah and we have done a lot of things I guess but I've done a lot of things in my life I've done a lot of things all my life and and I get disappointed if we don't fit more things in they would like probably sometimes to fit a few less things in <laughs> but um but I kind of think you know you're only on the planet once so let's do as much as we can but but they have had an amazing time and I I guess I'm very fortunate because we have an enormous family and and I'm very fortunate that uh I, I'm terribly close to my brother and he's also got four kids and he's got a lovely really lovely wife who's actually weirdly my husband's sister so that's a bit weird but anyway it is legal um but the eight of them are really close and my husband has another brother who has three children and they're close we don't see them as much sadly but um but I guess if you've got a big family I've seen the benefit of you know the sort of I guess I could call it a clan. Do you know the? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I guess when I was a child, there were families who just were massive, and they weren't. They didn't have lots of money or anything. They just were loads, and everyone was welcome there. And it was this wonderful sense of sort of four of us could turn up, and they'd be like, "Oh, push down the table, bring another chair, no problem." Everyone take a bit of your potato off and stick it down, and it. You know, there was nothing was a a stress and or a hassle, and you're always welcome. And I always thought it was such a lovely feeling going into houses like that and weirdly actually when you have lots of children so now with I'm just greedy to be honest that's true so I've got now we've got four children and and I noticed that you know if you talk to a lot of our friends have four children partly because a lot of people most people who have less than four children won't invite us over so you get sort of uh, lumped with all the people with four or six children anyway but if you've got another family over so that's 12 of you generally you'll find that the people who easily are very happy to have all of the kids over and us over tend to already have four or six children you know people who have one child or no children and you say oh could the six of us just pop in for a quick lunch they're like <laughs> and they're like, three no. times their family <laughs> descending yeah, on exactly. the house and it's like, well, yeah. that's so you know you wouldn't they'd be like oh i need a month to prepare for that whereas <laughs> if, you know we, we had a family some family friends and none of they had eight kids you could turn up any time day or night just <laughs> Like turn up they'd find bed spaces it wouldn't be a problem and there's something I like about that kind of um Oh, that totally that, comes through. That totally comes. Through. I feel like yeah. I, I could almost descend on you with my family and knock on the door, and there'd be there'd be something to eat, and somebody would have a drink, and there'd be you know um, yeah, somewhere would. to sit. Yeah, I guess it's a choice, isn't it? Because it does mean that we live in absolute chaos, and it's chaos all the time. And I sort of I feel you know I get 
sort of messages, less emails from the school going, well, this is a bit chaotic. And, you know, they don't turn up with the right kit. And and, and once, actually, one of my sons, he he's always late, actually. So he was in the car late. And, and if we're really late, I toot the horn. And we have put him on the bus a few times, which is a very, very long roundabout bus. But anyway, so I had to email school and say he's going to be incredibly late because he didn't get in the car. Anyway, this time he got in the car with his pants on, carrying his clothes, got in the car, got dressed on the way to school and got to school and went, where are my shoes? And I went, I don't know, because I don't have your shoes. I'm not, I've got my shoes. And he said, I haven't got his shoes. And I said, well, you have to go to school then. So he went to school with his socks on. And anyway, I got an email from school saying, your son's walking around school in his socks. And I was like, well, yeah, he forgot his shoes. So he got to detention. I thought, oh, dear. Well, hopefully <laughs> anyway, he'll remember his shoes next time. He his shoes yeah. next time, yeah. But I do think they probably think, gosh, maybe you should be a bit more. <laughs> I can imagine them talking about you in the office. Well, what's happened oh, today? Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> One of them's turned up without their trousers. But going, yes. going back to that, because then we go back to the, the kind of your journey through the book. I kind of had an aha moment in chapter three. I was like, ah, oh, this is kind of Sarah's life through property. Um, in the same way, when I was reading my good friend Claire Balding's book for the first time when she wrote um, My Family and Other Animals, it's kind of her life through animals, which means so much to her family. And that property for you, it feels like when you read the book, is is more than, it's certainly more than just four walls around you. You know, there's such an emotional attachment to places. And actually going back to your childhood again, it, it feels like it all stems from losing your mum in many ways. That kind of search for the perfect kind of home and family and being, you know, inside somewhere that, um, and the energy that that takes as well, that what, what you've done. I think, you know, there's this drive that that little girl found somewhere uh, well I I, I do you know, it was my husband that said he thought that once and I thought oh maybe I get I guess as a person you just have what you have and and I have always been incredibly driven and I have home is really important to me and and home is a building and the people inside so I guess it was a natural career but I mean the book is based around my home. So what's not in the book is we had a development company and an investment company and a few other businesses along the way, but I didn't put any of them in. This is very much a journey of my homes that I've lived in and what home, what my homes I've had. And yeah, I mean, they all mattered a lot to me and, and we haven't had very many homes actually because yeah, that you invest a lot in them. I'm not quite, it's a lot more than walls, but I do think... That's what I, I mean, it's, what I, it's not about the, the, you know, although you do go into really lovely detail about the buildings, it's not, I think the reader could almost picture those buildings any way they wanted. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because it's about what you create inside. Yes, and I think that's the difference. I do think it's easier, it's easier to function as a family well in a home that functions better so you know, if everything's really complicated uh, about the house I think I mean having lived in a few temporary places because we were, had building work and things mm. it's much easier when you've got you know a kitchen and a sink and and you've got you know a washing machine and and you know it was much easier it's much easier having a bedroom for each child because mm. then you can send them to their bedroom and that's a lot easier. And whilst, you know, sharing bedrooms is great and, and fantastic and lots of people have to do it and lots of people choose to do it, um, it is easier if everybody... Because you can say, put your stuff in your room. Mm. It's, yeah, it's more complicated and and having somewhere that everything lives. Having stuff everywhere is quite difficult to live with, I think. Mm. So I think fun uh, home functioning well 
But that doesn't mean it needs to be big to function well. It just, you just need to think about it. And I suppose that's where my um, career, in a way, has come from, is I just think if you the easier you can make a home to live in, then the easier it is to, to make it into home mm. because it's the people that make it into home yeah. rather than, than the building. Obviously, you mentioned the, the the businesses that you've had outside of the stuff that we know about from you on telly. Um, and you do touch on them very briefly in the book, don't you? And just say this was kind of going on. In terms of the the buildings, this is the thing as well, I think is a modern kind of phenomena, isn't it? Um, that people, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later with our expert, uh, Claire Barrett, that so many people now have most of their investment into their home. You know, that it, it dwarfs what would be in their pension because they see this as something that at the end they're going to sell and downsell size or that you know that's where they've put because property prices are so expensive while you're running your business on the one hand and you're doing up your own homes on the other how much of your business head kind of comes into the family home in terms of making sure that it you know it's not going to be a project that gets kind of out of control and you end up overspending is is it always there the business brain when you're doing even your family home no definitely not no <laughs> a home is a home is a home and i don't think you know, you can choose to spend your money on a holiday if you want to, or you can choose to spend it on a new car, or you can choose to spend it on designer clothes or flying business class or first class. You know, if you if you have money, you choose what to spend it on. And when we don't go on, on holidays and, you know, I've never been on a really... Actually, I did go on one because my mother-in-law took us, but, you know, that's the side. We don't go on really luxury holidays. We don't have, um, you know, our cars all bangers. We choose to spend our money on our home. And and so I don't think it matters what you spend because when you go out to supper and, you know, I don't know, spend, go to Pizza Express and you spend, well, gosh, with six of us, it's probably £100. You don't kind of go, oh, gosh, should what have I got from that? Is that Am I going to get the £100 back? you had a nice night. So you spent £100 in Pizza Express. So I think if you spend uh, £100 on some new curtains, you don't have to, or even painting your sitting room because you you don't like the colour. You don't need to get the £100 back because you're going to enjoy it, just as you do when you go to Pizza Express, you enjoy it. It's different if you borrow the money. You know, if you've got a business head on and you're borrowing the money or you've, you're making an investment as a business, I see them quite totally differently actually I see them as completely separate and as long as you've got the money to spend you know I, I wouldn't say go into overdraft to do it but just like I wouldn't say go on into overdraft to go on holiday because that would mm. if you haven't got the money then don't go on holiday if you haven't got the money then don't decorate your sitting room mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah because most well, most people's biggest debt is their mortgage isn't it so it's already it tied is. into their home the biggest debt you're ever going to have normally yeah and, but that's your main asset and you know when you get your buy your home it's really unlikely, in my opinion, I just add in my opinion, it's really unlikely that property prices are going to go down. They might flatline and they might go, you know, rocky a tiny bit. But as long as you don't have to sell next week, you know, over, say, a three to five year period, prices will, we're not going to be lower. They'll be stable or they'll rise a bit or a lot, or but they're not going to go down because too many people in the country are in debt. You can't have the entire country in negative equity because it sort of doesn't work. I could bore you with the economics of that, but I think you'd get it, don't you? You couldn't, it can't happen. So it will be your asset anyway. And your mortgage, you've, when you buy a property, the days of 110% mortgages will not return, fortunately. So you're never going to have more debt than you, that it's worth. And unless you do something unbelievably stupid, it's not likely to go down in value. 
as in if you do something stupid like, I don't know, demolish it by mistake or something. But, you know, not that's not going to happen, hopefully. So your asset is your asset is your asset. So what you do with your asset, I don't think you should worry too much about. So the house that you have built now, which um, is the, the project that many people have seen on television, um, which you kind of took an, a field, an empty field almost, and, and created this beautiful home. And now you're landscaping and the animals in the book talks about how, you know, you've got a love of gardening now and you've found your green fingers uh, because of this this place. Is this definitely your forever home? Well, I sort of thought it was. And then someone said that to me the other day. And then I thought, I mean, it is, yes. But then I thought if all the children moved to Australia, it probably isn't, no. No. But, um, but you know, you never say never. But I can't imagine, because if you sold this, then you'd have to live somewhere where else would you want to live? I can't imagine wanting to live somewhere else. You know, mm. we've taken our collective sort of, or 60 years of experience in pro- and the children so that's probably 100 years of experience between us in living in homes and put all of it into one home which I can't really see how you could get much nicer mm-hmm. so I mean that's for me yeah. I'm not lots of people would think that's a hideous house I'd hate to live there how ghastly but they don't have to live here so that's fine so um but for us it, it works really well for us and I suppose but not I, mean, it, I suppose what I was meaning was is there another project inside you is there another? No. no. Not for home. No, <laughs> no not for home. I mean, you know, uh, the, there's always a project. I'm always, am I never going to sit still? So I wouldn't. Well, I can't know, imagine I, you and Graham, especially when you read the book, you kind of remind me a little bit of my husband. I'm. He always jokes whenever we go in the world, he goes, are we seeing a property here? Because uh, I'd be <laughs> like, oh, I've just seen this place down the road. And um, it's quite interesting. So I can't imagine you two. Because I got an email yesterday from Graham, who I live with. So getting the information <laughs> is, is a little bit odd. I'm like, mm. you know, we live in the same house. Have you the can same come and see me. <laughs> yeah, I was like, Ooh, yeah. Um, anyway, anyway, he sent me an email and there was a link and I opened it up and it was a... Uh, it was a house in Italy. And I was like, what? I said, what, what are you talking about? And he went, I was just thinking. I went, no, absolutely no. And he went, but wouldn't it be great? Because all the children would come out for the summer and it's rained all summer and all our nephews and nieces had come out and then we could all have summer together. I went, no, we've got a really nice house, which is in the UK. We can spend summer here. And he went, yeah, it, it did rain pretty much all the summer and imagine it, Italy, it wouldn't. So I was like, just stop it. Enough. No. Anyway, so never say never, but I'm hoping I can shut him up. In this period of life, which you are bang in the middle of the midlife, and you've kind of said there that this could be the forever home, there there has to be a beanie project going on. So, so I mentioned the green fingers. Are you now looking at the outdoors as somewhere that you're going to get your kind of creative chops going? Yeah, and I mean, it's a farm, and so. Actually, I was up at four o'clock this morning because we were pouring the floor in a one of the barns. We were re-cladding one of the barns um, to have it fully insulated and and it will run on solar, so it'll be off-grid. And and I kind of have a bit of a plan to have that as a as a TV and film studio and recording studio. So that's a bit of a plan. So I have actually been I'm on the next project already to be honest. <laughs> and I do think, you know, it's nice for life to be more centered in one place. And I guess it's something you said earlier, which is really true, is that our homes now are our biggest asset. And I think that is a shame. And that partly came around because I think it was a bit of a government plan, actually, to be honest. The cynic in me thinks that quite a long time ago, they thought, well, if you can get everyone to invest in their home, and then when we can't afford for them to look after themselves when they're in old age, we can just take the money back off them. And then they've saved for their own care when they're old. 
And I'm like, well, that was really me, <laughs> really terrible. I mean, you know, we're really fortunate, but I do think for a lot of people, they really, 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 really struggle to just about have their mortgage. And then, and then the lot is taken away to pay for their care. Where no, I've seen it with elderly in, relatives in, in my yeah, family. Yeah, It's so, so sad. And I yeah. think there's you know, some very good friends of mine's parents, you know, they had literally busted up to pay off their mortgage. And they were so proud of buying their home, knowing that they had £300,000, they would be able to leave to their two children, which was a big deal, really mm. big deal for them. And the whole lot went on care. And I'm... Mm. I know we've something has to happen, but I just feel it's really cool mm. myself. But anyway, that you know. So um, politics, the next thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, we, again, I'll bring that up with Claire as well when we we get her on. But I, just before we do that, you're as I mentioned, you're 51 years old. You're living in your utopia. You've created this house, which is your perfect house, your children's perfect house, your husband's, and we've all seen it happen as well. And um, one of the things that kind of struck me and you say it in the book as well you didn't have that much local opposition really you somehow managed to kind of get everybody you had the yellow ferrari theory um, <laughs> which you might want to explain but you you didn't have kind of clarkson's farm opposition i mean maybe that's engineered as well to make the show slightly more um, polemical but how did you do that how did you win over people i do you know i i don't know i think we're very lucky to live where we live we arrived down here and the first day that we moved in, some neighbours came and said, we're having a barbecue, do you want to come over? And we, I sort of said, well, we kind of knew, and we slightly did it before because we went and made a home in, in Yorkshire Rise 20-odd years ago. We arrived knowing not one person. And and then we've got amazing friends, you know, really good friends who are, who are there now. And um, we wouldn't have been there for 20 years if we didn't have such good friends, actually. But... Um, I think we sort of said yes to everything that came along and met amazing people along the way. People generally, in my life, I've discovered most people are lovely. 99.9% of people are just really lovely. And so we didn't have a lot of opposition, which was really, um, it was like one or two. Uh, the yellow Ferrari haters, I always think. I always think it's um, in the UK, we've got a little bit of a tendency to... It's a, it's a bit based on jealousy, isn't it? So, you know, if you saw a yellow Ferrari driving past and you don't have one, my argument is, should you ban the yellow Ferrari because you don't have one and say, well, that's not fair. They've got yellow Ferrari. I haven't. So get rid of the yellow Ferrari. We'll ban them, make them illegal. Or are you just happy to say, well, I quite like looking at someone else's yellow Ferrari. That's kind of fine. But we have this tendency in this country to always relate everything back to ourselves. And if somebody else has got something that we haven't, some of us, not all, but some of us are a bit cross about that and think, well, they shouldn't have it either if I haven't got it. So I sort of think they don't they don't look at it and think, oh, I'm going to strive really hard to get that. They just think, well, I want, them, want it taken away from them because if they you get it taken away from them, mm. then I don't have to not have it too. And we can both not have it and that's better. <laughs> Which is really weird. But most people aren't like that. And I have to say, we have been so fortunate because... Because I've literally met hundreds and hundreds of people who are absolutely divine. I'm literally, I could name on less than one hand the people who were a bit anti. 
Um, everyone else has been delightful and Well, charming. you're totally throwing yourself. It's not like you, you, you know, use your house at the weekends and never, you're never around and don't join the community. I think the key to people, and there might be people listening to this who are in the kind of midlife quandary, maybe they have been city dwellers and want to move to the country. Maybe they're, you know, thinking of a big move um, logistically. And the key really is to integrate yourself, isn't it? And to let people know you're around rather than hide yourself away. Yes, I think that is true because I think um, the danger of you, if you try and keep yourself to yourself and you don't talk to people, I think the danger is, is that some sometimes that's read as being, the implication is that you, you don't like them and that you think that you're better than them. And that's definitely, well, generally it's probably not the case probably because you're shy, but that you feeling shy. I always think you have to remember that everyone's the centre of their own movie, aren't they? And so the fact that you think, oh, I'm a bit shy, I can't face it. They aren't thinking, oh, they must be really shy, they can't face it. They're thinking, what do people think of me? So what they'll think is, well, you obviously don't like me because you haven't talked to me, so so that means that you're not very nice. So do you know what I mean? We, remember, everyone sees it from their own perspective, everything. And when you go to a, when you move into a new area, you are the new one. Everyone else has been doing what they're doing and they're still doing what they're doing. You're the new person. And I don't know if you... I always remember this from when I was really... I was. I didn't put this in the book, actually. But when I was 17, I went uh, travelling around the world on my own. It's a weird thing to do, anyway. I decided that I wanted to prove that I could be independent. I don't know who I was proving it to because no one said I couldn't. But anyway, off I went for a year um, backpacking. And it was weird because I came back having had these amazing adventures all over the world and done all sorts of things. And I came back and everyone's kind of the same. It was like I'd left a week ago, literally like maybe a week or maybe five days. And I thought, God, I've done all these things and and nothing's Nothing's changed here. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you have to remember that if you move to a new area, everything's the same for everyone else and you're like the weird one who's come in it's probably the onus is on you to be f- friendly maybe yeah so funny my my goddaughter's twin sisters have, um they just started uni but they'd had a gap year and they'd done six months of travel and i met them two days after they got back we went all went to see a play and we we're having dinner beforehand and one of them said exactly that she said everything's just the same <laughs> <laughs> she's been kind of you know in these festivals in Kathmandu and you know yeah. discovering the barrier reef and she's come back and gone it's it's all just the same here as if we we oh, all kind of let not. her down <laughs> <laughs> totally totally but you still have to, you have to go to the shop and yeah you've still got it your mum still does the shopping and there's stuff yeah, going on and- really jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I 
I'm going to bring in uh, Claire Barrett from the Financial Times Money Clinic now to talk a little bit more about property investments, but also midlife investments and what people perhaps should be doing who haven't done enough before they get to this stage. Uh, Claire, good to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Lovely to be listening to you. I know you two have met before, haven't you, Claire? Yes. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you. My whole family is so excited, Sarah, because we're all property enthusiasts. Yeah, I interview lots of finance people on the on the Money Podcast. And when I said I was speaking to you, there was considerably more excitement. <laughs> oh, I'm very flattered. <laughs> uh, Claire, first of all, obviously, the property market uh, is something of a national obsession. And, and I think at the moment with mortgage rates, you know, increasingly kind of causing problems for people in terms of the, the cost of living and well, interest rates, as we speak, seem to be stabilising um, yes. at the moment, whether that's the, the long term trend trend or whether they're going to start to go down. Maybe you can tell us yeah, what your of, thoughts of are course. on well, that. Um, a nice visual metaphor for you. So the guidance that the Bank of England are giving, if we take their guidance seriously, because I haven't actually got it right for much of the last year, is Table Mountain. Uh, this mountain range in South Africa. So we've had this huge acceleration in interest rates, um, 14 rises in a row. They now think that things will hold steady um, for the next couple of years, which sounds good because they're not going to go up any higher, but obviously they're going to stay high. We've got 2 million people next year, same year that the general election is going to have to be called, who are going to roll off their mortgage rate onto a considerably higher one. Even if it's not as high as it could have been following the chaos of the mini budget, it's still going to add up to hundreds, maybe for very indebted um, first-time buyers, thousands of, of, of pounds extra. And it's going to take a big slice out of consumers' uh, budgets, and it's going to have a knock-on effect on our consumer-driven economy. So although the rates have peaked, we hope, we're going to get that delayed impact into people's finances. And then there the is a drop-off on Table Mountain, obviously. So um, is this how long do you think that this rate, and should we ever expect to go back to the low rates that we had? Not unless we have some kind of catastrophic recession or another Ukraine type incident, I don't think, because the problem with interest rates that we have is that they're going to need to stay higher for longer. That's the, the, the bank's guidance at the moment. Inflation is still a problem. We are seeing it fall, but that threat hasn't completely gone away. And interest rates really are the only tool that they have to try and control that. And it's not a very effective mm. tool. People talk mm. about this economic theory called the fool in the shower. If you stay in a in a shower, maybe if you live in a rental property and the plumbing's not great, you can imagine get into the shower in the morning, turn the hot tap on, nothing comes out. So you turn the hot tap on some more and then eventually you get scalded because there's a delayed effect. And this is how people compare it to the millions of people who haven't seen um, any impacts on their day-to-day spending yet because they have locked in a fixed mortgage rate, which mm-hmm. is very low for the next year, two, maybe three years if you're lucky. But eventually that's all going to start weighing on um, people's finances and on the economy. Mm. So that, of course, uh, has a knock-on effect in the property market. It slows down. People are nervous about moving. They're nervous about you know whether or not they can afford uh, that next big move. Do you see any intervention by the government coming up to to whether it's a stamp duty cut or something radical to try and you know because they do like the property market moving, don't they, governments? Well, I think Sarah summed it up very nicely earlier. It's how we kind of experience wealth. People feel very very 
happy if their house price is rising. I'm reminded of a famous Daily Mail article from a few years ago saying, my house price has made more than I have this year. But it is very much an issue on voters' minds. And in an election year, you can't rule out that they would do something to restart the property market again. But there's also a big gap for younger people. We've seen the Help to Buy initiative to help younger first-time buyers. That's come to an end. There isn't really anything to replace that. Um, I think that is a bit of a, a, a yawning gap because younger people who are in the rental market um, at the moment, and older people too, we're seeing record rises in the amount of rent that people are having to pay. It's going up at the fastest rate at the moment since records began. And it's really getting to unsustainable levels. When we first saw mortgage rates shoot up, there were calls for direct government intervention in the mortgage market to help people pay their mortgages. But I was always very, very anti that kind of move. If you have got a mortgage, you do have an asset, you've got a property. I think we've seen over the last few months with the mortgage charter and the way that the lenders have have behaved, that they are willing to work with borrowers who are in trouble and restructure their debts. And that should be a comfort for people who are listening and and worrying about this. As Sarah said, you know, the property market in this country is really too big to fail. And the political ramifications from from, from that would be extremely unpleasant, whichever party is in charge. But at the same time, we don't have that um, ability as renters to work on our future income stream, negotiate with landlords, it's much more piecemeal. And that's where people really are financially suffering the hardest right now. And uh, let's talk a little bit more specific to the, the midlife kind of uh, person, the listener that, that we have, who um, has maybe got to this stage, kind of, you know, late 40s and has relied on their property as the kind of thing they've invested in more than, say, a regular pension. They haven't got a work-related pension. Um, how... How hard is it to kind of secure something for your future at this stage? You know, is it ever too late to start contributing more to a, to a pension, do you think? And, you know, is there something better that they can do? No, I would say it's never too late. Also, you've got to look at longevity and how long we're likely to remain in the workplace for. But also how the workforce has changed since COVID. It's become a much more flexible and adaptable place for women especially, but really anyone with caring responsibilities. And I, I mean that for um, the down the scale with young children, but also up the scale considerably um, more. We're seeing FT readers now approaching us who are having to look after elderly parents, building on your conversation earlier about care. So it's never too late to start a pension. I think a lot of people are put off by the word pension. They think pensioner. Mm. <laughs> I think I'm not quite ready to, uh, to, to, to be, think of myself as a as as an old person yet this is a a problem I can piss off I can worry about it tomorrow but women especially are likely to have far smaller pension pots than men partly because it's part of our pay a pension so Mm -hmm. if we work part-time um if I had a career break as children exactly the gender pay gap translates into what they call the gender pensions gap so I think part one just be aware of what you have there's over 50 billion pounds, it's been estimated, of pensions that have lost touch um, with their owners. Often people, women and men, get to the age of 50 and they think, well, what have I got? Because retirement is kind of like a bit of a question mark on the horizon when you have like a a significant birthday. There are all kinds of ways 
um, that you can track down lost pensions for free. Um, I name them all in my book, What They Don't Teach You About Money, but you can easily okay. do it online. Sounds like a good investment. Plus, you can find out if you speak to the HR department of your company, what more you could get if you pay in a bit more. We call this the free money. If you sacrifice a small amount more of your salary, the employers often offer matched contributions. So maybe if you pay in 5%, they'll pay in 10%, but you could opt to pay in 6% and they would pay in 12%. And like getting these little incremental increases over time um, can compound your investments or will grow and that could give you a better position. But then we also need to talk about pensions with our partners. Now, I challenge FT readers often to find out what their personal gender pensions gap is, by which I mean, what's your pension or your pensions? What collectively are they worth? And what are your partner's pensions collectively worth? Because it's bound to be a figure that neither of you really know the answer to. And often people are really shocked because of that impact of taking time out of work, um, taking a career break, caring for others. Women's pensions are often quite minuscule. And it may be that you can solve this as a partnership by your partner either paying more into your pension, setting up a private pension for you going forward, or just making it possible for you from your salary um, to contribute more so that things can be equalised. And final, final point on this, so often when people get divorced, the pension isn't taken into consideration. But with these real valuable gold-plated company pensions people in their 50s and 60s may well be sitting on, Often, the value of the husband's pension can be worth more than the value of the family home. But in so many divorces, the pensions are not taken into consideration as part of the split. And that's a real crime, frankly, against women's finances, because (coughs) it is a really big hole. And it may be that we need our partner's help um, to fill it. But I think surfacing it and raising awareness of it has to be the first step. It's interesting what you say, but also... One of the things I was thinking is that actually there's a lot of focus. We hear a lot of talk about pensions, but actually so many people haven't had jobs where they've been paying into pensions. Mm. And so many people are self-employed. They're on zero-hours contracts. Especially women. Especially women, but but also men. Whole sections, like the whole of media, everybody Mm. is is on zero-hours contracts. There's nobody is paid on on anything apart from a day-by-day basis. Um, so everything to do with TV, film, all of that, journalism, it's all it's all freelance, isn't it? Everything's freelance. And and most trained traded trades are as well, if you're a joiner or a carpenter. There's huge swathes of of the country who are nowhere near thinking about a pension and certainly have never been employed by anyone and have had to deal with things themselves. So I suppose I would say in a lot of the time we hear about these statistics about pensions and it's kind of assuming that we have a, a job which I've never known, which is a job where you go to work, you get a salary and then you pay into your pension and then you retire. The, the thought that I'd retire is kind of like completely out of the question. I kind of think, when? I don't know when I do that. And I know that some people do have that, but a lot of people either don't have the luxury or the will to do it. The other thing, Because the other thing I do feel is that... Um, we're very young now at retirement age, a lot of us. You know, I'm not saying everyone is, but it's not unusual to be fit and healthy till you're 95, mm. you know. So to be retiring halfway through your life, what are you going to do with all that time? So I guess I, I would say that if somebody 
you know, you, you have one career. You can have many careers in your life. You can have one career for 10 years, one career for 10 years. And I guess also the flip side of that, Sarah, is some people don't like their careers as much as you and I might do. And they don't like yeah. their jobs as much as you and I might do. So they, they're not in, excited about the idea of doing that job beyond the age of 65. So I, I'm, I'm, yes. I'm, maybe that's the pivoting. Maybe it's thinking about something else to do as you're approaching that age is, is what would you really like to do? What would you really... Yeah, I think you know, that's what I sort of feel in a way is that don't feel that even if, if you are in a job because you have a lot of financial commitments generally which is why you may do a job you don't particularly enjoy but then hopefully when you get to retirement age those commitments are a little bit less although then you have your parents you have to look after instead but you know they're not as expensive as children so um so I guess um you know another career is possible and and so don't don't write yourself off because you're don't worry, I'd say, that you don't have a really good pension and don't write yourself off at pensionable age. It's kind of worth thinking, well, you know, there's lots of things that you could do and you get to speak to people, get to chat to people. If you don't need the money, you could volunteer. It keeps your mind agile, keeps your body agile. And, you know, you might go and work in a local coffee shop for just you know, half a day a week. Then you get to talk to people and meet people and probably keeps you young and agile. So, I mean, all the things you say are obviously right about pensions, but I think there are other ways. I think there's lots of people who... Well, we're going to have to be more flexible, I think, Claire, aren't we, in the future? Well, yeah, I'd love to come back on the self-employed points because a lot of this comes down to advice. Um, If you're structured as a sole trader, you don't have as many pensions options as you do if you're a limited company. So it's well worth speaking to your accountant about this if you are self-employed, because as a limited company director, your company can pay a percentage of the profits that you're making tax-free into your pension as the company contribution. Um, And lots and lots of people who are self-employed don't realise that this is possible and need that sort of intersection of the accountant, maybe a little bit of financial advice to help make a plan going forward to say, how could I do this as tax efficiently as as possible? How could I get the most money out of the the government, put something aside? It's not anything that we're taught in schools or even in business schools, but it really really should be because it could make a difference. And to your point about people wanting to give back as well when they reach a certain age, absolutely. You know, working in a job is not just about earning money, it's giving us a sense of purpose. And lots of women I see do want to go freelance when they get to a certain point in their careers because it gives them more autonomy to do what they want at what time suit them, but also to work in the areas of industry that that they might might want to. And so lots to think about, um, but always know that you have got that option um, as somebody who is self-employed to get more into your pension by thinking about how your business is, is structured. I do feel this is yeah, going to be a, a growth area as well for the government to be thinking about. There was just an article today, actually, in The Times about the government looking at middle-aged women are one of the parts of the workforce who are uh, most likely to retire early for various reasons and how they're trying to get those people back into the workplace. And so I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a topic of our times. Claire, just before you go, um, I can't see the hot topic of interest rates and mortgages, you know, leaving the table, leaving the, you know, the front pages anytime soon. As we build up to a general election, it will become even more important to people, won't it? And, and perhaps shouldn't be 
actually, because in terms of politicising it, you know, um, perhaps, you know, it's it's a cheap way for, for parties, isn't it, to try and attract votes if they think that they're going to be able to persuade people their mortgages are going to be lower with them. Um, how would you see uh, or how would you handle the next kind of year, two years, uh, if, if you were in charge and if you were you were the person making the decisions? Well, I think that we need to reassure people who have bought a home that they are in a much better position than millions of people who are renting privately because they have got an asset. They've got something that they can use as a negotiating chip with their mortgage lender. You should speak to, by the way, if you're at all worried um, about anything that's coming, even if your mortgage isn't coming up for for renewal um, in, in the next six months, just to be alive to the options that you do have. I mean, just briefly on the mortgage charter that the government's put in place with the vast majority of lenders, they will agree to restructure um, your your mortgage debts. You can stretch mortgages out for longer. Now, it's not a silver bullet. It does mean that you will pay back more interest in the end. It will be stretched over a longer period. But it does give people more options. Like perhaps you could do that for so many years and then downsize, move to a smaller property in the future. You know, there will be ways of getting through this. And it's in the government's interest to find those ways because there are millions and millions of people, homeowners, who are looking at paying much higher rates on their mortgages in the coming years. If we're all in this problem together, then you get these big solutions like the mortgage charter that will help lots and lots of people. It's still horribly anxiety inducing, but do speak to your lender. Remember that they have to offer you another deal on your existing mortgage when it runs out, providing you're up to date with payments and you don't want to borrow more money without doing another affordability check or a credit check, which is something I know that many FT readers are worrying about because maybe their circumstances have changed and they think I'm going to get bounced on to the standard variable rate. So be aware of your rights. And it is really, really stomach-churningly anxiety-inducing money um, at the best of times, which is why... I try really hard to get people in a position where they feel they can engage with their finances and to focus on how you'll feel after you've done that rather than the anxiety and, and the build-up you feel before it. I was just going to say, it's really interesting what you say, actually, because and I totally agree with what you're saying, that that the fear of your finances is often worse than the reality. And you know when you worry about things actually acting on it is often not nearly as bad as worrying about it. The worry is really bad. I do think there's lots of things government could do that would be really clever, that would ease, lessen the blow all around um, in all ways, like lots of little tiny nibbles. I think that um, uh, tax benefits for uh, supporters and carers would be a really brilliant thing, which would just make Take the ease. I think if you're caring for young people or you're caring for old people, there should be better tax benefits. I think that we've got a housing shortage, so benefits to encourage people to live together. There's nothing, it's not a sin living with two or three generations. In fact, it's perfectly sensible, quite honestly, because everybody can support everybody else. So, so planning um, a slightly better planning system to be able to have older people living 
in your home yeah. or, or slightly separately or and looking you know, at if inheritance you, tax as a part of that as well because that shouldn't complicate these decisions well that is. was another headline i think uh this week wasn't it that um that potentially could be um a vote winner couldn't it uh, i think yeah, that I mean, would be a really big vote winner <laughs> i think i mean inheritance tax it doesn't raise that much money and it's just a political hot potato but it does really affect people and it means that i guess the problem that I've got with inheritance tax is it makes people do things to avoid inheritance tax, mm. which actually takes a lot of money out of the market mm. and then loses a lot of fluidity because people are making plans. Whereas if they didn't have to make plans, and then you know, they wouldn't be trying to tie it up this way or that way to try and avoid it. So, so you'd probably get more money rolling around the system if you didn't, and it would make more money than mm. it does in terms of tax get yeah the tax so advisors not... would get less but i don't think anyone would be crying about that because it's just so complicated it's so yeah. complicated yeah it it, and that's yeah actually untangling <laughs> some of that for people i think is also a potential vote winner isn't it uh, thank you so much claire i think we have to have you back on uh, the midpoint because it feels like we've just scratched the surface but um oh, really wow. really appreciate your time thank you thanks for having me thank you bye <laughs> Uh, Sarah, that was great. It was a really interesting chat. And I do think there's, you know, so much of this is going to be in the news, isn't it, for the next, well, few years, certainly until things really do settle down to some kind of new normalcy. And that's what people are going to struggle to get their head around, isn't it, that we might not go back to those very, very low interest rates. No, I, I mean, I think that is is really key. And, you know, if you're if you're as old as me, which is you know, born in 1402. A lot of us um, listening are, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we entered the property market and we started a business, interest rates were at 11%. And so that was kind of, you know, when it went down to eight, I was thinking, oh, brilliant, it's only 8%, fantastic. <laughs> and so when, you know, sitting around the sort of half a percent for ages, I was like, this is just weird. Mm. But, you know, you have to think interest rates, to me, the downside with very low interest rates is, of course, all there's not much incentive to save anything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's a yin and a yang, isn't it? Yeah, I guess find the, balance. the commoditization of our homes is is a significant problem because mm. having our homes being a commodity, our finances living around that commodity is... So have you it, always invested in pensions yourself then? Uh, no. Right. Well, so I have a bit, but only because I get told that I ought to do something. I'm like, oh, I said ages away. No, I don't need to worry about that. So do, do you um, feel, you said it there a couple of times, but do you feel like you'll just always work? Yeah. Yeah, I can't... I mean, what would I do all day? I mean, there's, I do really like growing vegetables, but yeah, I think, I mean, if I didn't work, I'd have to volunteer or something. I mean, like, I admire people who can, who are at peace, but I'm not. <laughs> and I can't imagine ever being. Being still doesn't doesn't necessarily suit you, does it? It would really be difficult. That and actually, you know, new things come along. New things always come along. And that's what's the amazing thing I think about. If you keep your eyes open and your ears open, the stuff that comes along that you can do along the way. And now, I think, as you said earlier, that my kids and my husband have a band. And so they've just started a UK tour, which is really weird because we started Exeter on Saturday and then we're going around the country. And I'm thinking, and then on the last weekend, they were playing at Oxford, in Oxford. And as I was driving there, literally, they don't even need me there. My husband could drive them You're there. You're just they number one groupie. Like, 
Literally, I'm just a groupie. You're and eyeing was, up all the girls who are the groupies, just making I sure yeah, that... <laughs> thinking, are you suitable or not? <laughs> Actually, they've got very good tasting gum. Anyway, so yeah, then I was, I was thinking I could just stay at home tonight and I could just, you know, watch telly. And then I thought, oh, that sounds really bad. I mean, why would you stay at home when you can go and watch your kids? Watch your sons, yeah. That's amazing. I mean, they are having an amazing time, aren't they? They're having real they're proper amazing. success. So they'll be going on a world tour soon, I'm sure. Well, I mean, honestly, their UK tour is, it works out half it's already sold out I'm like oh my goodness this is very exciting I'm very overexcited about it so yeah and, and tell us the name of the band well it's called the Entitled Sons <laughs> which they norm- name themselves the Entitled Sons mainly because uh, because um, they've got a good sense of humour <laughs> you know you know when we, we did the, this TV show and they were in it and and they said everyone's going to say that about us and, and they said so we'll, we'll, get call our, first. <laughs> we'll get there first we'll get there first and actually when they called themselves lots of people just went Oh, and then they it stops loads of people being rude because they're like, we've said it. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> anyway, it, then then they wondered if they should rename the band, but then the band started taking off and I was like, do you know what? Get in there first. No one else can call, call you that if you've called yourself it. So. And Graham is part of the band. He certainly is. Yeah, yeah. He's the bass player. Is, I mean, I, can't, I can think of plenty of brothers in bands. I, I, I can't think of a band with loads of brothers and the dad. Has there <laughs> no. been one? Well, I don't, do you know, I don't know. I think there has been one, but normally it's like one, a dad and their son, not yeah, four not, brothers and their dad. Yeah, and, but, um, and your, is your nephew involved as well? Uh, well, no, my nephew, uh, Theo Beanie, who is totally brilliant, he also, he does write music and he's totally brilliant. So, right. yeah, Theo has got some fantastic songs on Spotify, but he's not, he's in not the in the band, but they are, one of their gigs they're doing in Camden is, is the Entitled Sons and Theo Beanie. Wow. Uh, so that's the night you all should go to. It's going to be brilliant. Yes. I am a bit of a super fan, but I'm going to be really honest. They are actually good. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not just saying it. They, they actually are really I mean, good. They had, so. a little, they had a little spot at Glastonbury as well. They which did. Is they nice. won a competition a to play there. A little local gig for you. That was quite handy. Um, yeah, this, is, well, this is what you're doing for the next 20 years. You're following them around the world. Um, so what about your own health and your own kind of perspective on that in, in life? You're, you're busy, you move a lot, you know, you grow your vegetables. Has midlife made you focus any more on, on things you could do better or things you should be adding in? Or how, how is the body? Well, well, midlife is a, I mean, it's a complicated thing, isn't it? And it's funny because there's a wonderful people around who are brilliant, who talk about the menopause and and there's lots of you know discussions about that but I think it's complicated for lots of reasons and and it's not just that you might have the menopause and you're in the midlife or any other number of reasons it's the fact they all come at the same time and I think that's what's complicated and it's very difficult to dissect apart a whole load of things that are happening in your life which is which is often that your children are leaving home if you've got children um and so they uh, are off and they don't really need you. And and your career is at a point where you've kind of, you know, you've grown and learned a lot, but the next generation are not children anymore who are entering the industry. They, they're now no lots as well, but you know lots, but you're, you know, shoved along a bit, not shoved along, but you're higher up. But the people underneath you are no longer people who don't know anything. They're people who know loads, but they're just, you know, 10, 15 years behind you and so I think it's a combination of loads of things that can sort of all converge at around the age of 50 
unfortunately, along with that, there's a load of health things that seem to kind of plop on top, which, you know, there's an increased chance of breast cancer and other illnesses. And you think, gosh, so whilst I'm feeling a little bit medically, like, I guess, vulnerable, at the same time... It's discombobulating, I think, everything you're it, describing. It is. Mm. And I don't know if you can... I I think you have to accept that there's a new change and a new you and a new time in life, which which I very much have. And um, now it's taken a while because you have to kind of go, right, put all this into... It can make you feel a little bit, I guess, like life is going on and you're sort of like could retire out of it but don't really want to. Mm-hmm. That's sort a of slight feeling. Well, I think if I th- you weren't as um, sure of, you know, yourself or you didn't have that conversation with yourself, it would be quite easy to slip back and think, I'm not quite sure where I fit in this picture right now. And I hope that's, you know, what this podcast does for people and helps people. But hearing people like you is is very inspiring and, you know, thinking that you can make a way for yourself in other areas. Has it changed anything in terms of the way you exercise or what you eat or how you, um, I mean, I don't know if you have had a regular menopausal experience because of what you went through with your um, chemotherapy. Has that affected you in that Um, respect? Well, I think I was probably slightly post menopause anyway before but if I didn't it certainly happened now so you know that's I think I had a I've been it's been a kind of a five-year thing and ending with with chemo which just to nail it a hundred percent so yeah that kind of nailed it and but I guess it's maybe I mean it is a complicated time because you there's a reinvention that you need to have of yourself. But I haven't, I do take a bit more exercise. I do go on the running machine, but unbelievably slowly and for not very far. And I do do that quite a lot of mornings because I just feel a bit better. And I have started stretching because it annoys me that I can't do like things. I can't do the splits anymore and things. So I thought, right, okay, I need to shape up. In fact, yesterday I was so sad. I was showing off. So my 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 son's there, and one of my son's lovely girlfriend, who's gorgeous, Minnie. And um, anyway, she we went to a climbing wall centre. You know those places where you climb. And I was thinking, I'm I'm going up, so I climbed some of them on easy one. You know the number one because I'm really like not very good at that sort of thing. Anyway, she's really fit, and she was doing an, like flick flacks. And I thought I'm going to do a cartwheel. I wasn't showing off. I wasn't competing, but I just thought I used to be able to do a cartwheel, so I'd do a cartwheel. Anyway, I pulled all the muscles in my side <laughs> and my thighs. So I was like, I really need to do more cartwheels, actually. But I did think that. I didn't think I must Use it or lose cartwheel. it. That's, that's Yeah, I thought, bearing in mind, I used to be able to do that one-handed. And now yeah. I've pulled all the muscles in my side by doing it with two hands. I need to Have do more Have you tried cartwheels. doing a forward roll? I mean, I, I, oh. I did a forward roll recently. We used to do those like, you know, and now they really hurt forward rolls. <laughs> yeah, I It's so simple. Do you know, a few years ago, about four or five years ago, I woke up in the morning and, and to be honest, I thought I'd had a stroke, but actually I had, I got a vertigo for no particularly good reason. I didn't even know what that was, but basically it's where, you know, when you spin round and round as a child and, and then everything's all dizzy, it's like that all day, nonstop. That's what it is. Like, so I woke up in the morning, it's like being on a boat. You kind of go, Oh, and then you hold onto the wall and you think, Oh, this is horrendous. Anyway, that lasted for about, um, two days until I until I realized sort of 
what was going on. Well, I looked at it. I thought I was, you know, I was like, oh, this is horrendous. Anyway, since vertigo, I'm really precious about turning upside down. I'm like, oh, don't go upside down because if I go upside down, I'll see stars and it all swings and sway. And I'm like, no, I've got to keep vertical, keep vertical. But I think um, I need to force myself to a four-drop. You, I'm going you to said in the book you stopped drinking when you were going through uh, chemo. Have you, have you enjoyed a glass of wine since? Are you back on the... Uh... I certainly have. Yes, I certainly have. And, you know, I do get comments from people saying that it's really, really bad. You definitely shouldn't do that. But I was, yeah, I didn't, I just thought my kidney and kidneys and liver had enough to deal with when I was having chemo. They were processing a lot of toxic stuff. But, yeah, to be honest, I never really thought I wouldn't go and have a glass of wine afterwards. And I have. And, you know, there's a bit of me that thinks, you know, I, I wouldn't judge someone else for how they do or don't behave in, you know, I, I think we're very, we live in a society now where everyone feels entitled to judge everybody else and comment on everyone else. I just think, well, just do what you feel is right for you. Um, Sarah, it's it's been great to chat to you about uh, all kinds of topics. I knew it would be um, a fun and fast-moving uh, conversation. And I think for the listeners' benefit, I think we had a bit of drilling, which I feel is the, the, the most appropriate soundtrack to a Sarah Beanie podcast, that there has to be some kind of um, renovation going on. Was there a little drill just then? Did I? Yeah, yeah I mean, so we had the first bit of it where my cat was outside meowing and I was I hoping that, you couldn't yeah. hear. No, oh, you we like animal said- noises here. I sent a text to, to Graham going, make the cat stop meowing. It's meowing at the door nonstop. So that was the beginning. And now it's actually in here. He just opened the door and it's in on the sofa asleep. And yes, there was Is that the film studio? Is the, the drilling? No, that's up in the, the farm. Actually, this is another project. You see, it's not stopping, is it? So this no. is the garage, which at, at the moment, since we built the house, it's just been a dumping ground for all the tools and I can't find anything and it drives me nearly demented. So we're just putting some shelves up so I can put like so you a... Can find things. You know, uh, yeah, I want to find a screwdriver and not go, where's the screwdriver? So it's going to have little rows with labels like these are the screwdrivers. Actually, just quick, actually, I was about to say goodbye, but actually Graham is an important topic in himself. I feel like I know Graham very well now, <laughs> having read The Simple Life. Um, and those of us who've watched you as well on, on TV see the, the beautiful dance that you have together. You know you have this great relationship that, um, you know, it's a partnership, but it, there's there's this mutual respect. Uh, it certainly comes through on screen that way and lots of fun. And here you are in midlife still in what looks like sometimes, you know, the, the first throes of love. How do you no, do it? Hanging, <laughs> no, we're hanging on in there by the uh, by our fingernails. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, you know, it's not easy, is it? Graham always said, the day we have to work at our marriage, I'm going to leave. And I was like, really? Wow, he's got a really <laughs> high bar. <laughs> yeah, I was like, ooh. But I think he has had to work at it, to be honest, because, you know, it's not easy, is it? There's ups and downs. But um, I, I think... There's a bit of a mindset. He once said to me when I was being particularly horrible, because I have been a bit horrible in the last couple of years, uh, to be honest, at times. And I was being particularly horrible. And he said, you know, the thing is, Sarah, is that uh, you're not prepared to leave and have your children half the time. And neither am I. So we're going to stay together and we're going to stay together happily or unhappily. So which would you like it to be? And I was like... Oh, that is a that's a, like quite dark, isn't it? But he said, "Do you want to be happy or not happy? Because either way, we're still going to live together." So I was like, "Okay, we'll do happy then, shall we?" And he's like, "What a good idea! Maybe you should be a bit nicer." I was like, "Yeah, all right, I will. I will." <laughs> it's really so logical. Well, isn't it? I think you're probably being tested quite hard in the last few years, weren't you? So you know, maybe yeah, there's been you know, it's not been 
you know, it's the ups and downs, isn't it? But yeah. all I'd say, is, there's a really good saying, which is you should never judge the inside of your life with the outside of somebody else's. And so on the outside, it's it's all pretty amazing. But yeah, it's a bit rolling inside. You dig, I mean, he he referred to the boys, you dig into your experiences, don't you? And those experiences have got you to where you are now. And you know that if there is a six month, 12 month period where things perhaps aren't as rosy, you know that you can find that other time again. If you believe that, then I think you yeah. can get through it. So I he, think he that's clearly right. did. He clearly believed that there was light at the end of uh, Sarah's <laughs> grumpy totally tunnel. Did. Yeah, totally. <laughs> he, he said, maybe we can fix this, hopefully. I rang my brother once, and this is a few years ago, and when I talked to my brother about everything, and I rang him and went, right, that's it. Glenn's been so annoying. I think we're going to split up. And he said, he listened to me like that ages on the phone going, yeah, 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 yeah. And he said, I just really get it, Sarah. I mean, it must be horrendous being married to him. The only thing I could think that would be worse is being married to you. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what? He said, so I suggest you go and make up. And I went, oh. <laughs> yeah, really everyone, ev- everyone needs a brother like that, I think. Oh, my God, he's brilliant, my brother. I was like, okay. And anyway, yeah, yeah. so all is well. All is well. And which now I you get, Good, because now you get to go on tour with free tickets. Exactly, exactly. So enjoy the tour. Um, enjoy as well your, your book and the, and the tour of that and going around and, uh, and letting people read that. So thank you so much, Sarah. <laughs> thank we'll you so much for having me on. It's been brilliant. Thank you. It was so lovely to meet Sarah. She's so passionate about her work and I urge you to read her new book if you want to hear more about her take on making a house a home. Big thanks to Claire Barrett as well. I think it was really interesting to get her perspective on property finance especially. And let me know what you thought of this episode by leaving a rating and a review. I love to hear what you find interesting and helpful and hit follow as well if you can so you never miss an episode. Thanks to Spiritland Productions and to you for listening. I'll be back next Wednesday. Catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.